Well, a great day to you, and once again, thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Dale Bader, for this edition of Focus on Fertility. And today we're going to be talking about pre-implantation genetic screening and actually some terminology that will be also changing. And if you're maybe just beginning your journey in uh, for fertility treatment, maybe you're not as familiar with the terminologies of PGS and PGD. Today we hope to uh, enlighten you more and provide some background information as the testing is really becoming more utilized and uh, more of a standard across uh, many of the clinics that are pro- providing IVF treatment across uh, the United States and uh, assume also on the global basis as well. Joining us today on the hotline is Dr. Alyssa Snyder. She is with iGenomics and is a certified genetic counselor specializing in fertility genetic counseling, human genetics, and genetic research. She provides comprehensive genetic counseling for patients undergoing PGS and PGD, which we will be talking in detail about today, so I will help give clarification of what those terminologies mean, as well as other tests offered currently by iGenomics. She does serve as an educational resource to both patients and clinicians alike, and she has taught graduate-level human genetics at the University of California in San Francisco. Dr. Snyder, it is a pleasure to have you along with us today. Thank you so much, Dale, for inviting me to be part of this podcast, and hello, everybody. I'm happy to be speaking with you today as well. So, Dr. Snyder, we're going to be talking about PGS and PGD, but at the same time, some of the terminology is starting to change. So, those individuals who may just be at the early stages of the journey, they may not necessarily hear the terminology PGS, PGD by the time they get ready to do the type of testing. And those who may already be down the journey quite a way and and have heard the term PGS may all of a sudden hear a a change in the terminology. Can you explain what PGS and PGD is and the new terminology that is coming? Yeah, absolutely. PGS will be the same thing as PGTA and PGD will become PGTM. So PGS, as it currently stands, is for pre-implantation genetic screening, and that's for things like extra or missing chromosomes. PGD is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and that's typically for testing a specific genetic condition. These names will be changing to PGT. Uh, PGT will be used to talk about any type of testing that's done on the embryo for pre-implantation genetic testing. And PGS will become PGTA for aneuploidy. And aneuploidy refers to any extra or missing chromosome. And PGD will become PGTM. And that M stands for monogenic diseases. And monogenic just means that there's a single known genetic cause for a particular genetic condition, usually a specific change in the DNA code that causes that genetic condition. So... Help clarify the differences then of PGS and PGD. Why would I want to maybe do one test over the other? That's a great question too. PGT or PGS is typically designed to help people have successful pregnancies and healthy babies. So a couple who struggles with infertility may choose to use the PGS testing, whereas PGD tests for a specific genetic condition. 
So a couple that know that they are at increased risk of passing on a particular condition may choose to use PGD testing. So we've spoken with some genetic counselors in the past from uh, other genetic testing agencies, specifically on carrier screening. Uh, Would PGD be more related to those who test positive in in a carrier screening environment then? Exactly. So there's a couple different ways that people might know that they're at increased risk to pass on a genetic condition, and certainly carrier screening is one of them. Some couples that go through IVF will do expanded carrier screening as part of the uh, process of doing IVF and will be identified to be carriers for a particular genetic condition, whereas other people will have a family history. Maybe they themselves are affected with a genetic condition or maybe other family members are affected, and they already know about that, and that's why they would go to the fertility center to do IVF and then PGD testing. Is the PGS testing completed um, there at the clinics, or is this something that happens in a separate location um, when they're going through the IVF process? That's a great question, too, and one of the things that almost always come up when I speak with couples before they do testing. The IVF process occurs at a fertility center A couple's medical care is all handled by their fertility center, and that includes the egg retrieval that's done as part of the IVF process and the culturing of the embryos. The embryos are also biopsied at the fertility center and then typically frozen, and the embryos stay at the fertility center until the results are provided. And it's just the biopsy that's sent to the genetic testing laboratory for testing. So sometimes I joke, you're not putting your children in the mail when you're doing the PGS or PGD testing. It's just that sample that's being sent to the genetic testing laboratory. And typically, how long does that testing process take? For PGS, it's quite quick, um, and there's no setup time that's required. So for PGS, the turnaround time is typically one to two weeks. For PGD testing, it can take a little bit longer, sometimes one one to two weeks, usually more on the side of two weeks. And for PGD testing, again, this is the one where you're testing for something specific, an inherited condition. There is a setup time that's involved, and the setup needs to be done prior to the IVF cycle as possible. And that setup time can take weeks to even months. Now, if I was a healthy couple... Um, relatively young, let's say I'm around 30 years of age, my eggs, my husband's sperm is tested good. We're just having difficulties making things happen, but my eggs should be good. So really, is there a need for PGS? Most of my embryos will be healthy, right? (laughs) That's a controversial question. Um, PGS can benefit many people, even women who are very young. So the chance for aneuploidy or extra missing chromosomes is higher as women get older, um, but they're common in, in embryos. And I think it's also helpful to point out that these chromosome abnormalities um, are very uncommon at birth because they're usually not compatible with life, but they're more common if you look during pregnancy. In fact, aneuploidy or extra missing chromosomes is the number one cause of early pregnancy loss. So it's more common when you look during pregnancy, and these extra missing chromosomes are even more common when you look prior to pregnancy. 
So if a couple is doing IVF and they're creating embryos, they do have an opportunity to biopsy and test embryos. So it is something that some physicians and some specialists feel should be offered to anybody that's going through IVF. Um, like I said, it's controversial and some people don't feel that that's the case. But even for women who are very young, um, each of her embryos has about a 20 to 30% chance to have one of these extra or missing chromosomes. And that chance increases as women get older. So, for example, women who are in their 40s, their chances to have an embryo with a chromosome abnormality may be as high as 80 to 90%. Now, for those individuals who choose not to do PGS testing, they, they basically take a random chance that the embryo that they're transferring or embryos that they're transferring is normal. Uh, but if they do PGS testing, they know at that point, correct, that they're putting back a quote-unquote normal embryo? That's right. So it's really about getting information up front, decreasing the risk of miscarriage, again, because these extra missing chromosomes can cause miscarriage. And it also can help couples get pregnant or get pregnant sooner because the embryos with a correct number of chromosomes have a better chances of resulting in a pregnancy. So you're getting the information up front, and sometimes that can be difficult to see the embryos that you have right away and what the results are, what the predicted outcome for those embryos would be. And certainly, PGS is an optional test, and the alternative is to not do PGS testing and transfer the embryos randomly. Um, and certainly that's the way people have been conceiving for millennia. Um, when you do that, some people are perfectly okay with, quote-unquote, letting nature take its course. So there is a typical chance of miscarriage, and that chance of miscarriage is likely to be higher for couples who are older. Um, and there's a chance that the embryo may not result in a pregnancy at all because of having a chromosome abnormality, an extra missing chromosome. Is there a statistical value that uh, is out there currently that about regarding chances of success when using a uh, PGS-tested normal embryo? There's a lot of statistics out there, and it probably varies clinic to clinic. So we do have some internal data from iGenomics showing us that an embryo that has a normal number of chromosomes has about a 65 to 70% chance of resulting in a pregnancy. Again, that number may vary clinic to clinic, and I think the reference number of what are the chances of pregnancy without PGS testing is a really good question and should be discussed at the fertility center. Um, that's the chance that a pregnancy results, and again, the chances of miscarriage is reduced but not eliminated by PGS testing. So the chance of a pregnancy that's established going all the way to term is also quite high, um, but not nearly 100% as I would wish that we could say. So that uh, actually is an interesting fact to me. So that's going to lead me to you know, the accuracy of results. If I'm putting back a, a normal embryo, or what I was told was a normal embryo, uh, why, first of all, why wouldn't it uh, become a pregnancy, and, and I guess that's because of the, the nature of becoming pregnant in the first place, but is there is there some reasons because of the accuracy of results? 
When an embryo is found to be normal and put back into a woman, and if a pregnancy doesn't result or if a miscarriage occurs, most likely it's because of something unrelated to chromosomes. That being said, the chance that a chromosome abnormality was missed in the embryo is not zero. So the PGS testing in particular is very good, but it's not 100% accurate, and there is a chance that a chromosome abnormality was missed that could later on lead to miscarriage or developmental abnormalities or even a pregnancy that, doesn't, um, that isn't established. So it's also important to emphasize that there are tests that are available to couples that do get pregnant um, when they're pregnant to confirm the results of the PGS testing. There's different types of tests that are available. These would include a category of uh, diagnostic tests, which are really good in terms of their accuracy and comprehensiveness. And there's also a category of non-invasive testing, which has the main advantage of being non-invasive. These tests are available to confirm the results of PGS testing in case the PGS did actually miss a chromosome abnormality. And typically, if something is missed, it's actually not because of a technical limitation of the PGS test, but a biological limitation, which is that sometimes the cells in an embryo are not all the same. And we are kind of making an assumption that the cells are all the same. So when we say that an embryo is normal, that implies that the rest of the embryo is also normal. It is possible that the cells that are tested are different than the rest of the embryo. So that could lead to an embryo that's diagnosed as normal, but actually there's a chromosome abnormality present in a different part of the embryo that just wasn't tested. And how many cells then are being tested, roughly? Usually around five, um, probably between two and ten. And because I'm unfortunately I'm not as familiar in the embryology world, but when they these biopsies are being occurred, approximately how many cells are in existence at that time? There's a few hundred cells, so it is a small fraction of the embryo that's tested. Also helpful to recognize that the biopsy does occur on the outer layer of the embryo. It doesn't actually take cells from the part that's going to become the baby itself, which is an, an inner cell mass, but rather from an outer layer that's destined to become the placenta. So you're saying the potential is there that something that is tested and shown to be normal may not be. What about the opposite? Could something be come back and said it's not normal, and, and could it have been normal? There is also a chance for that scenario, which we call a false positive, which is that an embryo is diagnosed as abnormal when it could have actually resulted in a baby that developed term. And the same sort of explanation that the cells that are tested are found to have a chromosome abnormality, but in other parts of the embryo, there may be normal cells that are capable of developing um, into a, a pregnancy and a healthy baby. So that's part of the limitations of the PGS testing. The PGS test, most, most laboratories quote to be 98%. You can see it's a very good test, but these really these tests really are not 100% accurate. And we're still actually dealing with science. Uh, you know, with my background as a meteorologist, we could have a lot of great tools, but we're never going to be 100%. And, and if you're saying the results are about 98%, that's getting pretty close. I agree. It's a pretty it's a pretty good test, and it greatly benefits many many people. 
What are the chances, uh, as we kind of finalize things a little bit here, what are the chances for any one person to have a euploid embryo? Does that vary? The, chan- uh, the chances to have a euploid embryo, again, would go back to age. And there's really no other established factor that's correlated with the chance for an embryo to have a euploid embryo. And again, a euploid embryo is one that has the appropriate number of chromosomes. So women in their late 40s may have a lower chance of having a euploid embryo compared to a woman who's in her early 20s that may have a higher chance of having a euploid embryo. So it may take fewer embryos to find that that good one for a younger individual versus someone who is of older age. Is that kind of what you're explaining? Pardon, Dale, can you ask the question again? Sure. So if the individual is younger, it may take fewer embryos that they send for testing to find a, a normal or euploid embryo versus someone who is of older age. It may require more embryos to find. Is that correct? Absolutely. And and it's kind of a double-edged sword. People who are younger typically have a higher number of embryos that are obtained in the first place and a higher number of those embryos that are obtained that have a normal result, whereas women who are older may produce fewer embryos and a higher fraction of those embryos may be found to have a chromosome abnormality. And unfortunately, yeah, it's it is, we all have our biological clocks, and as we get older, it's fewer and fewer eggs, which means fewer embryos created, and, and now we're hearing fewer potential to get to that normal rate. So if you've joined us in the past, we've talked recently about knowing about your biological clock, and we'd really invite you to listen to some of our previous podcasts about the, the importance of knowing your biological clock and uh, maybe even preserving your fertility at a younger age for the future so that uh, your chances are increased. Well, Dr. Snyder, do you have anything else that you'd like to add uh, for our listeners today? Yeah, I think that there's one important thing to mention with the PGS test that I typically go over with folks that are talking with me when they're trying to decide if this is a test that they want to do. Um, And we've talked quite a bit about the benefits of PGS testing. And it's also important to say that the PGS test is not necessarily for everyone. I really love the test, and again, it benefits many, many people, um, but it's not for everyone. And like all genetic tests, PGS is optional and should be considered in the context of personal goals and values. Well, we appreciate you very much for sharing the information, uh, expanding upon what PGS and PGD are, and what soon will be known as PGTA and PGTM. And uh, we look forward to catching back up with you maybe down the road if uh, there are changes that uh, may be worth uh, sharing to enlighten the, the listenership. Thank you so much for having me today, Dale. Wonderful. Have a great day. You too. If you've been trying to start your own family and haven't had success, you're not alone. Millions of people just like you are experiencing the same very personal and painful frustration. Infertility affects men and women equally. The Missouri Center for Reproductive Medicine, MCRM Fertility, can help. MCRM accepts most insurance and you don't need a referral. They offer the most advanced science and technology, including exclusive techniques and the embryo scope. Check them out at mcrmfertility.com. 
Hopefully this edition was helpful in better explaining the PGS, or soon to be known as PGTA, process and why it can be beneficial and how it can help you if you're continuing along your fertility journey and possibly going through the in vitro fertilization process. We do send out a special thank you to Dr. Alyssa Snyder from iGenomics for joining us once again today. And we hope that you are joining us every week for all of our editions and episodes of Focus on Fertility. We have a new episode every week with a special topic to help you continue along your fertility journey. We invite you to follow us along on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, the TuneIn Radio Network, as well as on Podcast One and our website at focusonfertility.net. If you have any questions concerning this topic or episode, or maybe you even have something that you'd like to hear covered right here. Please email me at questions at focusonfertility.net. Until next week, wishing you the very best along your fertility journey.